0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3. Featuring lunch panini, salads, sandwiches, and soups. Full menu at crumbbrothers.com.
1: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Sherry Quinn. The Utah State University Ecology Center is hosting a series of seminars each month with scientists from across the country. The next one, January 14 and 15, is Hope Jarin from the University of Florida. She's a plant physiologist and has authored numerous scientific papers. She's also a writer and maintains a blog titled HopeJaurinSureCanWrite.com. I talked to her from her small hometown in Minnesota, where it was 35 degrees below zero this week.
2: I grew up here in rural Minnesota, close to the border with Iowa. There's not too much around here in my little hometown. There's a great big slaughterhouse. And so most of the town works there. And um, my parents, however, were teachers. My dad was a teacher at the County's community college, and so he taught chemistry, math, and physics, and basically anything that needed taught in the sciences, and so we grew up kind of with that influence, and um, we were always around with him and his work, and he was always doing stuff at home with us, and so it became, I have three older brothers, and of course they were all interested in science and doing stuff, and we just had that as kind of a daily influence all the time. (laughs) There's not much else to do, (laughs) really. So my brothers and I used to build things and take things apart and see how they worked and, you know, watch Star Trek and all that kind of stuff, which, which reinforced what we were learning and what we talked about at the dinner table and that kind of business.
1: Why plant physiology? What attracted you to plants, I guess?
2: I was first attracted to rocks, actually. I liked, um, I've always liked chemistry, and I like geology. And um, I like to be in the laboratory. and I started out interested in geologic time
0: and interested
2: in how rocks recorded, how life has changed over a very, very long periods, hundreds of millions of years. And I got interested in plants because they are such a successful strategy, sort of, for being alive on planet Earth. They've been very successful for hundreds of millions of years, and they're very different than we are. And so I started thinking about why that might be true, you know, what what makes plants what they are and what makes them so successful at being what they are. And from there, I started to experiment on plants. We grow plants in the lab and... It kind of just went on from there. You just kind of follow your curiosity and see where it leads. And all these years later, I went from rocks to plants, and now I'm getting into food and sugar and even human blood and all kinds of things. So that's one of the really nice things about what I do is it's it's, um, been a way that I can follow my curiosity with a great deal of freedom.
1: Well, that's wonderful. And can you tell us more about human blood and what you're working on?
2: Right. So I got interested in sugar because plants, you know, plant metabolism is all about making sugar. (laughs) Human metabolism is all about burning sugar. Your brain needs sugar to stay alive. And, you know, that's when it comes right down to it. That's the one thing your body will prioritize over everything is getting sugar to your brain. So where does all the sugar on Earth come from? Well, it turns out the only organisms that can make sugar out of, you know, the raw materials of the Earth are plants. And so I got to thinking about you know, sugar-making processes and how different things have affected that over geologic time. And I got to talking with people about, about sugar and how the emergence of different plants, you know, corn coming to such a prominence in our diet and how, you know, the different kinds of sugars have affected human metabolism. And then we very quickly got into thinking about, you know, is there some way we could test for the consumption of plant sugars? Is there some way we could do a test on your blood, for example, and see what kinds of sugars you've been eating and how much. And of course there are plenty of plenty of techniques that can do that for, you know, your last meal or or maybe you know, your more recent dietary history, but what we'd like to do is come up with a marker that tells us something very integrative about how you generally eat, what your dietary patterns are over many months. And, um, that's what we're working on. And, uh, of course, I'm collaborating with a big group of people, nutritionists, et cetera, but I'm the sugar person. And, um, It's really great. That's another great thing about what we do is it brings you into contact with all kinds of different people that know things you don't.
1: How do you feel about the American diet and the amount of sugar that we consume and the kinds of sugars that we consume and the sources?
2: Yeah, I think, well, I think everybody has this experience. You know, everybody certainly at more than 30 or so sees that, you know, the kinds of foods that are available and the amount of food and the, distribution of food, you know, if they just walk outside their door and go buy lunch, you know, down at a strip mall or something, that the, that the offering of food is really different than, than they had as a child. So we've all seen foods in America change quite a bit. And I think it's also a legitimate question to say, you know, American health is changing quite a bit as well, and how do those two things fit together? Um, I think if you go talk to your doctor, she or he is probably going to express some concern if you tell them that, you know, you're eating out of the strip mall three times a day. <laughs> so I think the foods that are really available in a very convenient fashion and also in a very affordable fashion might be the very foods that your doctor might be too, not be too happy with you consuming a lot of. And I see, personally, I see things going more and more that way, that, that these foods that we're concerned about are more available and more affordable as time goes on. And at this point, we've got to start thinking about, you know, what is our strategy for dealing with, you know, the overall effects of of these facts. Um, feeding my little boy is a very different proposition from, you know, when my parents, when my mother sat down each day and, and decided how she was going to feed me.
1: How do you feel about the amount of corn in our diet and all the sugars derived from corn? And
2: I think... Corn is an interesting thing because it's good for everything. I mean, it's good for what ails you, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. can do almost anything with corn. You can yeah. make it into sugar. You can eat it as a grain. You can feed it to animals and then eat them as meat. You can ferment it into alcohol and burn it into your car. And so, you know, we we keep finding more and more uses for corn. We also keep growing corn at a at a greater and greater rate. And, of course, the amount of land that's been turned over to corn agriculture from other types of agriculture has increased greatly um and so we're we're entering a phase you know in the last 10 years or 20 years where a huge amount of you know everything we do here in america goes back to growing corn um i think that's an interesting thing um we've never had you know an economy that's so so very much based on corn before and it is worth Asking questions about, you know, is the conversion of you know sugar sources over to corn sugar sources, fuel sources over to cornfield sources, you know, what are the ramifications of this, and and you know, is this a good idea? Um, Of course, if you supply corn seeds, um, it's a very very good time to be in business right now.
1: I'm intrigued by the title of one of your upcoming talks in Utah. um global change in your dinner plate. Can you discuss that talk and what that means?
2: Right, exactly. So I'm interested in plants. I'm interested in the way plants work. And in in human society, we've basically turned plants into three things. Um, Food, wood, and medicine, right? So um, you can grow plants and get all those three things out of them, and there's really not very much you can do as a society without some kind of supply of those three things, you might not think about wood, but if you look around your office, you'll probably notice that there's a huge number of items made out of wood. And Actually, a lot of the structural things we depend on go back to wood. Mm -hmm. But anyway, back to food. So, one thing that's interesting about plants is that they use the atmosphere for um, raw materials. And the atmosphere is something that's changing actually very quickly, um, and that's not a interpretation of data. That's actual data. We can see that you know CO two levels are going up. The amount of different gases are changing. We call those greenhouse gases sometimes because they affect plant growth very much in the way that you know you build a greenhouse in order to supply very specialized conditions for plant growth. So one thing that we've noticed is that if we change greenhouse conditions into a configuration that we might expect for the future, Um, we see plants change. In some ways, increasing CO2 for them is like increasing the size of of your dinner plate each night. Plants turn CO2 into their own tissues and so, you know, if I doubled the size of your dinner plate each night, um, you would change morphologically, Right. When you give plants all these extra resources, it's a little bit like giving you and me an awful lot of extra food in that we will get bigger. You know, it stimulates growth, but it doesn't stimulate growth uniformly. So um, your waist size might change an awful lot, but your collar size probably wouldn't change very much. And and we see that in plants mostly in that um, we see them shunting these resources below ground. And so we see them building tissues below ground (laughs) Sometimes at the expense, um, but definitely at a at, to a larger extent than we see them developing tissues above ground. And this is important when we think about the kinds of foods that people around the world are dependent upon. People eat a lot of corn, they eat a lot of rice, they eat a lot of wheat, and those plants all build tissues above ground. And we think about things like sweet potatoes, you know, potatoes, yams. Um, those are the plants that are going to get the extra boost from we expect the um, atmosphere to be changing over the next several hundred years.
1: Also, if you think about the amount of energy that we get from those grains like rice and, and wheat and even corn, the amount of energy that's packed into a, a small uh, amount of food, which is really partly what's allowed societies to, to grow as much as they have industrial-scale agriculture.
2: Right, definitely. And, and we've also got a growing population. Um, there are many more people on the planet that, you know, need food and shelter um, and resources. And so thinking about, you know, how to, uh, what to grow and how to distribute what we grow is going to be a a really important endeavor for the next couple hundred years.
1: And do you have any thoughts on that? And do you have any ideas of what what, what would be the best sources, food sources? The
2: number one thing we're going to have to wrestle with is the idea that we're turning food into meat and then eating it as meat um, as opposed to just eating that food as food without that um, intermediate concentration. And that, of course, serves to concentrate that food, and it also it takes away from the food supply because uh, a large amount of that food that we feed to animals goes into um, maintaining them, and, and they excrete it as waste, et cetera. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is that um, these below-ground crops, uh, are in some ways they're much easier to cultivate hmm. um, in terms of their water needs and the extent to which we can store them and the ways in which we can transport them, etc. There's a couple catches here in that just because a plant is bigger doesn't mean it's more nutritious. And so right now we're looking into not just you know, how the size and, and yield of these things changes uh, with changes in climate, but also how the, how the nutrients change. Um, but I feel optimistic that, you know, we know quite a bit about plant genetics and breeding, et cetera. And so um, we just made need to be proactive and, and breed new lines for the future that um, are going to perform better and yield a more nutritious crop under a changed climate. Do you eat meat? Yes, I do. You know, there's a variety of approaches. There's, you know, there's different concerns for well, it's the different propositions to to feed different animals, and it's also about how much you eat. So we we tend to have very black and white standards when you look at food. Do you eat meat? Don't you eat meat? And it it takes on sort of a religious aspect, but really eating is a lot of actions that add up to the number of times you eat in a week adds up to the number of times you eat in a year. It's actually a lot of little choices. I, I think that's a That's a more sane approach to the problem, as opposed to being really categorical and black and white about food practices.
1: You have a page on your blog about climate change, and you write about what you tell people who feel hopeless about it. And what can you say to brighten their outlook or our outlook a little bit more?
2: I deal with a lot of people that are very, very negative about the future. And what I find is that, I mean, what I suspect is that they're actually expressing, you know, something else that's going on with them. I think if you look back through history, there's, you know, there's always been these big problems that people have had to solve. And, and there's always been some of these problems have seemed extremely hopeless and have also taken a terrible toll, et cetera. But I think the idea that we're entitled to live in an age that doesn't have to wrestle with these terrible conundrums is unrealistic, basically. And I think it's better to say, well, you know, this is a product of our age, and what are we going to do about it? I mean, you know, we're part of the one billion people that aren't basically, you know, struggling to make a go of it in pretty bad conditions. And and I believe that being part of, of that, rather um, lucky portion of the population gives us a responsibility, you know, not to give up on the world that we've compromised and to to look at what we're going to do to try to approach it as rationally and compassionately as possible. And I think that becoming negative and withdrawing into hopelessness is not a responsible approach, basically.
1: It seems also that you've written quite a bit about what it's like to be a woman in science and what can you tell aspiring young women who would like to pursue a career in science?
2: I think it's it's really hard. I mean, I think that um, I've gotten uh, some attention and I think people are a little surprised in that I'll talk very bluntly about the parts of it that aren't very pretty, you know, that there's assault and harassment and, and you know, there's a lot of, you know, that science is just as troubled in terms of the relationship between men and women that we see in in many other spheres of of life. And people, you know, are hopeful that science is somehow going to be more noble than that, but, you know, it really isn't. I think that uh, it's an injustice not to be really blunt about, you know, that these are the facts. I think that what I try to focus on is the fact that people have so much power individuals have so much power to support and encourage each other you know and that um, despite you know the struggles that I've had to whatever extent you know despite all of that that those are not the things that I remember when it comes down to it you know what I remember are the people who told me that I was special and that I had something to contribute and I try to remind people that they have the power to go out and communicate to that to someone today you know that they need to find the best kid in their class and tell them that they were the best, you know, and give freely, you know, give that piece of encouragement and support that might make all the difference in what can be a really cold and abusive environment, basically.
1: So was it cold and abusive at times for you when you were pursuing your, your education in, in your career? What did you experience that you think many other women experienced also?
2: Oh, I mean, you name it, right? I mean, there's, there's yeah. just the standard experience. I don't think this is so much the case anymore, but you get really used to being the only woman in the room, you know, whether it's in a meeting or whether it's in a classroom or it's um, on a committee or something like that. Um, I just... I'm so used to that feeling, and I think, you know, the next thing that happens is, you know, when you're in that situation, it's sort of inevitable, you know, eventually somebody makes a joke about how stupid women are, or how, you know, you always find yourself in a situation where you're being asked to kind of deride or or laugh at yourself, and and that's really, I, I always go back to that as as kind of the worst of what's out there. Although I've experienced, you know, things that are, that are you know, maybe folks would say worse than that. Uh, and I've written about that as well. But, you know, it's a hostile world out there, but you can't run away from that by leaving science. I, I, not run away. What I mean is that, that you can't you can't say, well, I don't want to deal with that and so i leave science because it's, it's not science. It's science part of the world in general. It's part of the fundamental problems that, you know, men and women have in um, sharing power and and relating to each other. I I think I started my blog because these things were so obvious to me and things that I was dealing with on a daily basis and nobody was talking about it. You know, there are these things, these elephants in the room that nobody talks about. And so I started this blog and and I said, well, what's the point? You know, there's plenty of stuff on the Internet, right? So, so the only point of doing this is to say what I really, really think. What has happened to me and, and how do I feel about it? And what am I never going to get to say in any other format? And so I did it, and um turns out people are interested to read it. It's really been a big surprise.
1: But do you think it's actually getting harder for women, especially because it's becoming even more competitive and it's publish or perish? How far along do you think they've come in gaining... More respect in the fields. I I think
2: the issues are different today. I Mm -hmm. wouldn't say that things are better or worse. I think that you know each generation is going to have its things to wrestle with. I was really saddened and troubled to see you know the most recent GamerGate stuff. I think today's young women deal with a host of you know uh, anger and violence and and hurt that we didn't have in our days. Because you know the internet hadn't been invented yet, and there weren't the same kind of vehicles. So you know whatever gains we've made, but, but the troubles, the really fundamental troubles, are still there, and and we still have to really try to confront those and say, you know, where does this anger come from? You know, why why aren't we safe? I think we're still asking the really basic questions on our own behalf and also on behalf of each new generation of women i don't see a time when we'll ever have to stop asking those questions
1: you're giving two talks in utah this week the second one is titled what can carbon isotope composition of plant tissue tell us and can you give us a synopsis of that talk
2: that talk is a little more technical and it basically tells the story of a lot of experiments that we did over the years um and uh, in the end, it talks about some things in carbon isotope fractionation that we've, we've observed lately that I think are quite significant. But this talk is really just the story of how we started looking for those things, um, the wrong turns that we took along the way, and how we finally got to this point where we started to recognize that we were seeing something really important, and then how we nailed that down and began to communicate it. So, in one way, it's, um, you know, talking about the science, but in another way, it's it's sort of uh, the story of, of how we got to something, you know, over the course of twenty years. That I think is is really special.
1: What are some of your next topics?
2: I'm I'm really into giving you know practical advice. I, I read a lot of applications from students. I I review a lot of stuff, and and I think, gosh, you know, and I see you people make the same mistakes, you know, again and again. Or or I see ways in which it just seems like they're there's some basic stuff that people aren't being told in terms of how they could could really up their game. And so I'm really into, you know, throwing out what I think are is some good advice for, you know, how to write a letter, how to write an application, you know, how to do some of the steps that you need to make to be successful. And if it happens to be useful, then, um, you know, it's time off then. But at least I've gotten to see my, say my piece.
1: <laughs> how do you like teaching and what do you gain from it? And What do you hope to convey to your students?
2: I like to teach. I've done an awful lot of it. I wish I could just get every single person in the world at one place at one time and (laughs) teach them this stuff that I think people really need to know. You know, everybody needs to know the difference between a plant and an animal, what's really the fundamental difference, and and why do they evolve differently. And and there's these things that I just think every every person would, would enjoy knowing that. And I find myself every year kind of teaching people five at a time or 20 at a time or whatever. Mm-hmm. So presently, I'm looking for a way to to do that teaching on a much bigger scale. And I'm wondering if it could be, you know, my blog or it could be YouTube or, or even, you know, some writing with PBS or something like that. So that's, that's what I want to get into. And, and I see that as teaching. And um, that would be yeah. something I would really love.
1: What fascinates you about life on that microscopic level.
2: I think a lot about how you know we're trapped into whatever form that we're in you know and you can think about that just on a personal level you know I'm a product of my culture I grew up in Minnesota and it's going to take work for me to understand somebody who grew up you know across the world and and has different values and and different experiences And, and that takes a real work and it's also really rewarding you know there's nothing like the rewards that come from even being able to do that just a little, and and you can scale that back and say, you know, I'm a I'm an animal. I, I move around and I know how to eat and um, uh, experience the world that way. But if it rains or it gets cold, I've got to go inside, you know. And and what is the perspective of you know a tree that doesn't move around and, and can't get out of the weather and, and lives for two hundred years and and all these really foreign concepts and so to me it's really fun to think about just how different something can be and and what staying alive on planet earth means when when that's your strategy and and you're not an animal and again you know like my other example the rewards from stretching your imagination like that are are really incredible you know the pleasure that comes from it, it just it's very indulgent in a way you know the life of an academic you know, to actually be paid to wonder about things and, and think about them and, and talk about them to other people. I, I just marvel at the fact that this is actually a job. And, <laughs> you know, and all I can do is try to show that I'm grateful for the opportunity by working as hard as I possibly can, trying to realistically show people honestly and openly that what the job is. Um, I think people in general would be really proud of the scientists we have in this country if they knew a little bit more about what we're doing and how hard we're working and and how much we care. Shows like yours, I I think, are instrumental in bringing that to people. I mean, not everybody wants to sit and spread a plant all day like Mm -hmm. I do, but, you know, maybe a lot of people would be happy to know that there's some really fun and interesting things that you can learn along the way and that, that, you know, there's just armies of scientists working conscientiously and carefully in order to to attack a whole variety
1: of problems. Right. I mean, it does take a lot of passion that I, I see because it is so much work. And in, or, in order to make it, you really have to try hard. And
2: I think I think it's so, so terribly much work that the only way you can do it is that if you love it so much, it does not feel like work. Mm. And that's a hard thing to tell students. Um, yeah. You know, if they only do this if you love it so much that you'll be unhappy if you don't do it. Because it's not a career, it it takes over your life and it gives back these incredible things, but it gives back in proportion to what you give it. And I think that's hard advice to hear sometimes, but I honestly, you know, I think it's, I think it's the right message to communicate. At the end of the day, I don't know, people are drawn to one thing versus another and um, if they can get into a situation where following their heart leads them to something, Uh, that they're really good at.
1: I'm aware there can be many obstacles for students pursuing scientific careers, particularly in laboratory settings.
2: It's strange because I'm not, you know, I'm not a bitter person. I'm very, very grateful that I get to be a scientist every day. Um, But I'm also very committed to, you know, being honest about the fact that science has a very troubled landscape, particularly in its relations between Men and women. And um, not talking about it is not going to make it go away.
1: I noticed you boldly addressed a lot of these issues in your blog, and and what have been some of the reactions to it?
2: It's varied. You know, there's an awful lot of academia that doesn't read the internet. Mm -hmm. So um, what I realize is that I'm really disproportionately talking to, you know, not my peers but to people that are either deciding to get in the business or they're struggling in the first stages of the business. And so I, it, it's this weird thing where um, there's an awful lot of students, et cetera, that I might not ever meet that might have read my stuff, but uh, other faculty that I work with every day have certainly never seen it. So I feel a little bit like I'm under the radar. And it, it's a strange thing, but I try to I try to just write, you know, when you write, you can't, you can't worry about how people are going to hear what you're writing too much, um, because that, you know, you you go down that rabbit hole and it'll really change the way you express yourself. Um, you have to stay honest and true to your own voice and, and, and really think about what do I want to say? And and then at the end of it, all you're going to have to fall back on is the fact that you wrote it as honestly and accurately as you could once it's out there and, and people are criticizing it, you know, your only comfort is really going to be to tell yourself, well, if I had to do it over again, I would have done the same thing. So uh, that's how I approach it.
1: That was Hope Jarrin. She is this month's featured speaker at the USU Ecology Center, January 14 at 6 p.m. and January 15 at 4 p.m. The talks are free and open to the public. Her first talk global change and your dinner plate is geared more for a general audience sherry quinn access utah
3: Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe
0: for... Chicken and pepper stew. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University. Public outreach information on our Facebook page, Cache Valley Science Kids. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science.
2: This week on the Putumayo World Music Hour.
0: It's a Portuguese musical odyssey as we travel from Portugal to the New World.
1: I'm Rosalie Howard,
0: And I'm Dan Storper.
2: Pack your bags and join us for the next Punamayo World Music Hour.
0: Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn.
4: And I am Susie Montgomery. Recreational marijuana became legal in the state of Colorado for those 21 and older in 2014. Washington and other states are preparing to follow suit. Today on the program, we explore the effects, from a theological perspective, that marijuana policies have had on American society.
5: I'm Reverend Dr. Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite and I'm professor of theology and immediate past president of
4: Chicago Theological Seminary. An ordained minister of the United Church of Christ since 1974, she's also the author and editor of numerous books and has worked on two different translations of the Bible. Thistlewaite is currently working in a new area she calls public theology and on a new book on human nature and public policy. She writes a weekly column for the Washington Post called On Faith in the online section.
5: I grew up in the New York City area, went to college in Massachusetts. I did my MDiv and my PhD at Duke University. taught a lot of places before I came to Chicago Theological Seminary. I'm from the East Coast and my husband's from the East Coast. So we were uh, in Washington DC and then in Boston and then I got recruited to CTS about 25 years ago, and my husband's a doctor. He works at the University of Chicago as a surgeon, and um, we've been very happy in Chicago, and I really like Chicago Theological Seminary. They have greatly encouraged me to go out on these kinds of theological limbs and uh, really challenge uh, some of the accepted bromides of our culture, of our religious frameworks, and uh, it's been very productive for me.
4: Violence and war and violence against women are areas she has particularly done a lot of work in.
5: In both a macro and a micro sense, that is interpersonal violence, as well as um, the way in which women and children now are primary victims of war. But I think that the way in which our culture replicates violence, and rather a lot of the time than Christianity being the voice of conscience to interrupt violence and to um, try to mediate and find more peaceful solutions, more just solutions, you have a version of religion that is a violence accelerator. So I spend a lot of time trying to point out places where I think our cultural life is being incited. Um, to be more violent than it needs to be and that better social policy influenced
4: by conscience can um, move us in a better direction. Reverend Thistlewaite recently wrote an essay titled Marijuana, a Theology, published in the March 4th edition of the Huffington Post. In the article, she explains the social problem of marijuana and how marijuana policies have greatly contributed to racism and prison overcrowding. Sherry recently talked to Reverend Thistleweight about the article and her perspective on the U.S. policies that she says have contributed to racism and high incarceration rates.
5: As I said in the article, people tend to look at what you put in your you know, body, uh, marijuana, as an example, um, as a, just an individual problem. But in truth, it's a social problem, and we want to think about the social body And what's good for the social body. And the policy on uh, marijuana, which is the so-called war on drugs part of it, began in the Nixon administration, has been drastically racist, um, as well as making us among the leading nations in the world. We incarcerate more people than China. Uh, so uh, um, this, is, this is a ridiculous way to, um, to run a society. Why aren't we trying to rehabilitate people? Why are we instead stuffing our prisons? And a very distressing aspect of the prison system, of course, is the privatization of prisons. Uh, you should never make a profit off of incarcerating people because then there's an incentive to keep them incarcerated or to get them incarcerated. Um, but, you know, we have 5% of the world's population. We have almost 25% of its prison population. And the marijuana policy is a big part of that. Uh, it's just a feeder system for the jails and, particularly, a feeder system of black men into the jails. Black men are more than six times as likely as white men to be incarcerated for the same marijuana offense. That's a statistic from the Pew Research Center and uh, another really really good resource for those of your listeners who want to go further is an ACLU report, The War on Marijuana in Black and White. Let me say that again, The War on Marijuana in Black and White. And it's available on ACLU.org, and it is very comprehensive in documenting how much wasted time and money we have spent on this fruitless drug war that instead we could use on education and rehabilitation.
1: Have you looked at the incarceration rates for Hispanics?
5: Oh, yeah, that's yes, yes, that's very um, much a part of this report as well. And uh, the Hispanics are gaining um, on the African-American population in relationship to rates of incarceration.
1: Men make up 90% of the prison and local jail population, and they have an imprison rate 14 times higher than the rate for women. And these men are young. Incarceration rates are highest for those in their 20s and early 30s.
5: Stepping back from such high rates of incarceration. I mean, people who are incarcerated end up having very poor health outcomes, for example, after that. So then the costs don't go away, they get transferred to another part of the system. So I think we've got to find a healthier way to approach this.
1: Marijuana arrests continue to soar despite changing attitudes. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Annual Uniform Crime Report, an estimated 749,824 arrests were made nationwide for marijuana, more than 87% of which were for possession in 2013, and marijuana arrests accounted for nearly half of all drug arrests in 2012.
5: It's staggering the number of uh, marijuana arrests. Marijuana use is roughly equal among blacks and whites, and yet blacks are 3.73 times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession.
1: How do you feel about medical marijuana and legalizing medical marijuana?
5: Oh, I think this is a very good idea. I mean, I was looking after you asked me to be on this interview at an article on research on marijuana for PTSD. And there's been a very long-delayed study of uh, people looking, researchers wanting to look at a treatment for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the idea that, I mean, this is another use of medical marijuana beyond uh, that for cancer and um, uses in that vein. But the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which supports medical research and legalization of marijuana, has been trying for 22 years to try to develop uh, marijuana drug research and to see if there are some uses that can be helpful to people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think you uh, listeners probably uh, know also about the idea that uh, marijuana, in the opinion of some parents, has been helpful to uh, children. Who have epilep- epilepsy. So, why? Um, now, you know, you want to, if you're going to think about these things in a theological sense, um, one of the things that, why is this, is our drug policy driven by this kind of hysterical moralizing, you know? And uh, other countries around the world look at us and they look at our prison population, they look at our attitude towards drugs and don't understand it. But I think that looking at it in the history of theology, it's very akin to the 19th century uh, social purity movements. The uh, temperance movement might be a terminology that people would be more familiar with. I'm actually teaching a class now that covers some of this area. And so the idea was that, you know, right, we are the... America's the kingdom on the hill, the new Jerusalem. We're going to bring about the kingdom of God on earth, so we have to be pure. And so legalizing alcohol was impure. So that led to prohibition. And what a disaster that was for uh, criminality in this country and finally was repealed. Well, we're beginning again... To see some common sense coming in to our drug policy, and we are moving away from this hysterical moralizing. But it's taken a while, and um, it's just ruined so many lives, and it has cost so much money. And, you know, money that I want to repeat could be far better spent on treatment and education. So, you know, it's it's got its roots in this kind of idea that the U.S. is God's chosen people. And that comes from the kind of Puritan theologies that helped found the country in, you know, in really kind of primary cultural ways. So I think we've got to recognize that Morality is more often related to common sense and finding in a particularly religiously pluralistic society, as the one we live in now, you've got to come to a kind of common sense approach. But uh, replaying prohibition in the drug war has been disastrous, financially, culturally, and I think criminally
1: some reports suggest that marijuana is a gateway drug and new brain studies are coming out more and more these days on the effects of marijuana on the developing brain. And how do you feel about it in that sense?
5: I am advocating not that people use marijuana. I quote the Apostle Paul in terms of, you know, your body is a temple and uh, you don't want to mistreat it. I think that any stimulant, any depressant and alcohol is now legal. And uh, some People even think a glass of red wine a day is good for your heart. A little bit of moderation is probably okay. But I think what you want to do is try to start taking the money out of it. It does say in scripture, money is the root of all evil. And I think that's a very wise statement because you can't make incarceration profitable. You should not make the drug industry profitable. Now, I will say I was just in Colorado Um, We have a second home in Colorado, and we were out there for spring break, and um, in January, Colorado, it said in the local paper, had collected $2 million in taxes on the sale of legal marijuana. So we have perhaps relocated the economic factor in marijuana, um, and I would think not for the highest purposes of the common good, but perhaps because states are looking for revenue, you're going to see more legalization of marijuana. That's just going to be economically driven. Um, But I think that what we need to lobby for now is to get some of those funds. You'll never get all of those funds, but some of those funds diverted to education and treatment. Because there are some people who can't handle stimulants or or who can't handle depressants. People become alcoholics. So uh, I think that that's where we could put some social energy and getting, reducing the prison population as well, because these will not be criminal offenses then, uh, will help enormously. You have generation of people who um, have been incarcerated incredibly high rates um, amongst racial ethnic minorities, particularly, as I said, men. Um, And this is this is very bad. It's very bad for families. It's very bad for children. And it just has to stop.
1: There are some pockets in the U.S. where economies in in some rural areas have have been consumed by the marijuana industry. And how can we address the issue, this issue and the issue of arresting so many people where the legal line is often blurred.
5: Well, we are in a period, broadly speaking, of economic disarray in the country. And you've got, you know, low-wage jobs and you've got very high-end technical jobs. And in between, as people have routinely said, the good jobs in the middle have gone away. So these are connected to larger problems. Marijuana policy is not going to fix that. But I think that... We can stop the most egregious effects of this locking people up for nonviolent marijuana uh, use and divert those funds to education and treatment. And I think that's the way we need to go. But I think we've got miles to go. I think that the takeaway from this is this has been an extraordinarily racist policy. And I think the move to decriminalize and legalize marijuana is a step forward in terms of more racial justice. We're a racist society. That should be self-evident.
1: A new state of Utah law is now allowing parents of children with severe epilepsy to obtain a marijuana extract they say helps with seizures. Sherry Quinn, Science Questions.
3: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. This week, learn how artists got people moving west by idealizing both the journey and the destination. First, this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The mapmaker for the Dominguez Escalante expedition, Bernardo de Miero Pacheco, created the first known map of Utah in 1776. Miura combined Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake into one large body of water with a river outlet that led straight to the nearby Pacific Ocean. For the next hundred years, artists on survey expeditions to Utah would continue to combine observation and imagination in their depictions of the western landscape. The earliest surveyors were looking for natural resources to tap and easier routes for settlers. The 1849 Stansbury Expedition was the first scientific team to use artists to document the flora, fauna, and geography of the Great Salt Lake. Soon after, the 1853 Fremont Expedition brought along photographer Solomon Carvalho to document a route through the Wasatch Mountains. Brigham Young also commissioned depictions of Utah to encourage immigration. At Young's behest, English artist Frederick Piercy spent six months in Utah in 1853, creating drawings that appear in a guide for Mormon converts traveling to Salt Lake. Despite the guide's purpose, Piercy himself returned to England and was excommunicated for refusing to immigrate. Many artists and photographers of the West exaggerated the wild landscape, emphasizing the vastness of the sky and the wonders of creation in order to fuel the imagination and, more importantly, the immigration of people from the East. Some artists romanticized the journey, making trails look lush, exciting, even easy. Albert Bierstadt, for example, came to Utah with the 1859 Lander Expedition, Bierstadt was known for his sweeping mountain vistas, which convey the emotions provoked by nature more than they depict geographic reality. Other artists, like Thomas Moran, who accompanied the 1873 Powell Survey of the Colorado River, created paintings of Zion, Yellowstone, and the Grand Canyon that influenced Congress to protect these areas as wilderness. Artistic license? Perhaps. But these expeditions produced an unparalleled body of artwork—drawings, paintings, and photographs— that contributed to the settlement of the West and to its enduring mystique. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank.
0: Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.
3: Peter Carey writes about hackers and cyber warfare in his new novel, Amnesia. How do you write something enduring
2: about something that comes out of a digital cloud? And you are trying to do something that will
0: last. And you're trying to, every second, make something that's true and beautiful that never existed on the earth before. Peter Carey, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Saturday morning at 6 on Utah Public Radio. Get your creative juices flowing. Utah Public Radio wants you to design the next UPR coffee mug. Draw, paint, photograph, or even quilt your way to the top design as voted on by UPR listeners. What could be cooler than having your artistic creation enshrined forever on the side of a public radio mug? Simply create a design that reflects your interpretation or appreciation of UPR. The entry deadline is Monday, January 26th at 10 a.m. For ideas or for more information, go to upr.org. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today. Uh, Up next, we have Zorba Pastor, and the time is nearing 10 o'clock.